I think I could boil our whole talk down today into uh, one thing that you need to really know. One thing that is most important for you. And if you can get the weight of what this one issue is and you understand it to the depth of what God intended for it to be in our lives, your life will be transformed. Your, your world will be transformed. Your vision for what God has for you will change. The way that you approach life will be different. The way that you interact with people is going to be different. The way that you have your world set before you is going to be different. It's, it's, it's coming to a place where we understand what it is that God has for us. Because I think the most important thing for you to get into your mind, and that's, I'm, I'm operating off of the assumption that you know Jesus, that you're calling yourself a Christ follower, that you're walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that, one of the things I think that, that the church in general, not just us, but the church in general has experienced or not experienced is what it means to have the joy of God in our lives. I'm, I'm not talking about happiness because happiness is a fleeting thing. Happiness is like, like the, the dew on the ground in the morning. You can walk through your grass when you get up. If you get up early, you walk through the grass in the morning barefoot and your feet will be wet from the dew. But 20 minutes after the sun comes up, that dew is gone. It is, it is just evaporated. And that's what, that's what happiness is like for us. And we've all experienced the happiness in, in, our, in, our, well, in our lives. We've, we've seen it come and we've seen it disappear. There's, there's one day when we feel absolutely euphoric about life and we just think life couldn't get any better. And then the next day we're melancholy because somehow overnight that thing that made us happy just absolutely disappeared. And we're into the humdrumness of life. And so I, I'm not that interested in spending a morning trying to convince you that you need happiness in your life when, when that can be taken away from you so quickly. So what I really want you to take away from today is that there is an opportunity for you to have the deepest joy of your life that you've ever experienced. And that's really kind of where we're going to be going today is that we're going to look at deep joy. And what does that look like? And how does that manifest itself in our lives? And what, what, what happens to take it away? Or what are the things that come along and, and, and deal with us? And, you know, a lot of times what happens is people let the circumstances of life determine how they're going to interact or how they're going to view life or how they're going to be happy rather than joyful. And, and a lot of times we get upset with God because God isn't, providing the happiness that we want out of life. We're looking for God to give us happiness when God, God never once promised to give you any kind of happiness in life. He never said, I'm going to make you happy, 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 happy. That's not his intention for your life. He does want you to know, the, know his joy because when you know his joy, when you have this deep joy of God in your life, it goes deep and it puts roots down deep 
They cannot be moved. Those roots are, are un, unfathomable for us. And so I just want to show you a little bit this morning because, you, you know, a lot of times uh, we don't understand how joy works. And so I want you to get a picture of how God's joy works in, in your life, in the universe that you live in, how God's joy works in your life. And one of the guys that, that I think really gives us the greatest picture of what that looks like is a guy who absolutely had everything and lost everything. And so I want to kind of show you about this guy because he, he had everything taken away from him. And, and yet he didn't curse God. He didn't turn his back on God. He didn't forsake God. He didn't do anything except the unbelievable. And so I just want to let you see how that played out in his life. And if you don't know who I'm talking about yet, that's okay, because his name is Job. And Job was this incredible man. He had such an awesome relationship with God. He had, he had such a deep, passionate love for God that it was mind-blowing. And one day Satan came in to God and, and they were having a conversation. And by the way, Satan went into the throne room of God only by invitation. He doesn't just walk in there. God says, yeah, you can come in here. Let's have a conversation. The words that God spoke to Satan were, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> I hope God never says, have you considered my servant Ken? Hey, that's for, some, that's, that's for a five-talent guy. I'm, I'm like a two-and-a-half-talent guy, and I'm okay with that. So, uh, one day what happens is a, a servant comes into Job and reports to him that the Sabines had come and raided his farm, and they stole all the oxen and all of the donkeys, and they killed all the servants that were taking care of him, and he alone, this servant, servant survived, and he was telling Job all about it. And while he was still speaking, another servant came in and, to Job and told him that lightning had just struck his great massive um, flock of sheep, and all of the sheep and all of the shepherds were burned up in this great fire, and he lost all of his, his flock and his servants. And this servant was the only one that survived that, that fire. And while he was telling him, yet another one, the third servant, came to Job and told him that three bands of Chaldeans had just come and killed all of the servants and ran off with all of his camels. And he was the only servant that survived the attack of the Chaldeans. And as he was telling him, yet the fourth servant came in to Job and said that this huge tornado had rolled in off of the desert and hit his oldest son's house where all of the children had gathered together for a family reunion and they were having a great time of celebration and having a party when the tornado hit the house, totally destroying the house and killing all of Job's children in the house and the servants, and he alone was the one that escaped. I don't know if you've had a bad day, but that is a very, very bad day. Just think about it. Everything you absolutely own, all your monetary possessions, all of your livestock, all everything that you absolutely have are absolutely destroyed. And then to make 
you know, to pour a little salt and lemon into the wound, all of your kids, not just some of them, all of your children are killed in a tornado where, that hit a house and destroyed it. Now, the part that is, is for us to understand is, how did Job respond to God in the very worst season of his life that he could imagine? And by the way, here's a little cliff note. The one thing that I think Job wished was taken from him, was not taken from him, was his wife. Because she was not a great person of encouragement. She told him, you should just curse God and die. Honey, I love you so much. But here's how Job responds to the worst day of his life. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Do you see that? I mean, in absolutely the worst thing that could ever happen to a guy, absolutely the worst thing. And what does he do? He doesn't get up and shake his fist at God. He doesn't say, how, God, you're not a loving God. You're a horrible God. How could you allow all this to happen? Why did you bring this evil into my house? Why did you do all this? That is not what he did. He fell on the ground, and he worshiped God, and he blessed God. Man, we have a bad day where we get a ticket from the police officer because we are actually breaking the law, and we get angry with God. How could you let this happen? I was going to give that money that I have to now give to the ticket. I was going to give that to you, but now I have to give it to a police officer because I got a ticket. Thanks for nothing, God. You know, some people have, have things going on in their life that really aren't that bad. They really aren't that, that big of a, an issue. I mean, I even think about my daughter, Leela and Cody, and, and Priscilla. Guess what? Pris Priscilla's still alive. Guess what? Priscilla's going to get a new heart. Yeah, her life is not going to be easy, but you know what? She's still alive. So what? I don't have anything to be grouchy about. I don't have any, you know, there are so many Christians that walk around, and I use the word Christians like this, and maybe even some Christ followers, and they walk around in life, and, and they look like all they do all day long is just suck on lemons. And when you walk up to them to have a conversation with them, that, that lemon-sucking Christ follower, then they suck the joy out of your life. And you're like, wow, life isn't that hard. I mean, we come to, come to church and, and we're, we've, we've just had these songs that we've been singing and we're, we've been worshiping God and, and all these things are going on and, 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 you know, we've got our, and we've come in here because we recognize that our God is a great God. He's created all this stuff. He alone sustains my life. And I walk in and this is how I worship God. <laughs> yeah, love you, Jesus. Life is good. And we, we just get all grumpy pants about it. I mean, of all the people on the earth that understand the graciousness, the goodness of God, we're the ones that should come in here and we should be like, 
Yeah, I mean, just like, you know, not quite like Jenny, but similar. Okay, there we go. Now it's rolling. But I'm just telling you, what's wrong with us? Why do we act like this is the most miserable place to be? Because that's not what the case is. Now listen, I don't want to... I understand that we've got things going on in life. We all face loss at some time or another. Things come into our life that hurt. Relationally, we're hurt. Physically, we're hurt. We have friends who are suffering deeply, maybe with cancer or other issues in their life. We hurt for them. We pray for them. And we don't minimize any of that. And we don't say that we shouldn't mourn with them. We, do, we shouldn't say that any of that stuff shouldn't be a reality in our life. I don't want you to fake it until you break it. I want you to get into it and understand that even though you, you know, this is bad stuff going on and we need to mourn with those who mourn, the Bible tells us, and we need to rejoice with those who rejoice. In all that avenue of life, we have all these things set before us and we need to step into it. But regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in life, If your joy is deep in Jesus, the foundation of all of it is still there and nobody can take that from you. Fred kind of alluded to last week's talk about how when you're a Christ follower and you will follow Jesus and the things that he's told us to do and we live out the scripture in our life, we're going to collide with culture. And so this morning, I think it's really important for us to to understand what God has for us and how we live our lives out in it and to align our lives with biblical teaching so that we don't try and, and build our life, our foundation on a false well of happiness that caves in on itself, but rather we have this deep well of joy that we draw from and the water in it is sweet. It's not bitter water. It's sweet. And so we're going to have to maybe attack some more of what culture says and what culture says is good. And it's for our good that we do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the passage of the book that we're studying, the guy we're studying right now, Habakkuk. And if you've missed the first three weeks in this series, I'm just going to do a really quick um, update to bring you up to speed on what's going on. So this, this young guy named Joshua became king. And, and his dad was a really bad dude. And, and God eliminated him. And Joshua came in and became, became king. And Judah had been worshiping all these idols. They were into idolatry. They had set up all kinds of temples and worship in Jerusalem. And and Joshua is just absolutely out of his mind on what's going on here. And so as he's cleaning up and fixing the temple of God, he comes across these scrolls, the Torah, the first five books of God. And he and the priests, they start to read it and they start to weep because they realize that they serve a holy God and yet they are an unholy nation. And so then they bring all of the people together and they they present the word of God very clearly to everybody. And they're saying, here's what God's word has to say. All of Judah falls on their face in repentance. They're moving into the whole area of revival. And and things are just starting to take, take 
uh, place because it, this, this revival is breaking out in all domains of society. It's in the people's homes. It's in how they do business. It's in how they treat one another. It's how they think about God. And Joshua is the guy that's leading this, the king, along with the priests, and they're bringing this reformation, this godly reformation to Judah. And then like Joshua, because he's that kind of a guy, he goes out to battle and fights against the Egyptians, but in the battle, he's killed. And after he dies, his idiot sons take over to the throne, and instead of following the path of their father, they follow the path of their grandfather, and they almost immediately set up all these temples, and they start to worship um, foreign gods again, and they have these these things, these temp, uh, pagan temples going on, and they're making these unbelievable sacrifices. And that's where we catch up with Habakkuk, who is a prophet at that time. And he grows enraged at the whole situation. Not that God had killed or allowed the death of Joshua the king, but that he's mad at God for letting his people behave in such an ungodly way. And he's kind of like saying to God, why are you idly watching your people do these ungodly things and God answers him in a very affirmative way in a very positive way and he says hey listen Habakkuk (laughs) you don't know this but uh, I'm doing some stuff I'm not idle matter of fact right now at this moment I'm selling sending the Chaldeans your way those hasty bitter violent uh, horrific nation they're going to be my tool of judgment on Judah oh and by the way Habakkuk also on you So what we're going to do now is we're going to pick up Habakkuk in uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And this is what he says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Uh, So let me just stop real quick there and just point out something. that Habakkuk's really not very happy with the way God's moving his judgment towards Judah. Not happy at all. But so what does he do? He kind of like right here at this very, in verse 12... He's, he's, he's doing this thing where he's bringing flattery to God, right? Hey, God, you're pretty cool, you're pretty awesome. So he goes on and says, We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure of pure eyes, purer eyes, than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So he's kind of backed himself into a corner. Old Habakkuk has. And and he's back into the corner and now he's going like, all right, God, uh, you, you know that I've already talked to you about this. And he says, you know, this, there's this wickedness going on and you're idle in the wickedness. That's his first complaint. And God says, oh, I'm not, I'm not idle. Listen, there's always judge, justice and judgment for wicked, wickedness. I'm not idle. Here, I'm, I'm going to bring it right now. And, and then Habakkuk says, well, well, wait a minute. I really don't like that that's how you're going to do it. I want you to do it, but I want you to do it the way I want you to do it. And God kind of laughs at him a little bit, right? And, and he says, because what you're doing now is you're going to take these, I, I agree with you that Judah is wicked, and you're going to take this country that's more wicked than us, 
to punish wicked people, so you're using wickeder more people to punish the wicked. And I don't like that. I just don't like where you're going with that because I, I think that your eyes are so pure and that you're from everlasting. How could this possibly be? And, and we're really not going to die. You're not going to uh, absolutely annihilate us and, and that surely can't be what you're doing. And do you see what he's doing here? Do you see what's going on? He's flattering God while making an accusation, his second accusation at God. And do you know what that is? That's very much like us. That's a very human thing to do. And so here's the accusation he makes. You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them, all of them, up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? That's, that's what he, Habakkuk's complaint is to God. He's, his accusation against God is that he's using the unrighteous to punish what is unrighteous. And in so doing, he's allowing the unrighteous to celebrate in their own strength. It's not might and it, 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 in, his, in their own might and in their own glory. And what he's basically saying is the Chaldeans are simply going to sacrifice to their gods and they're going to exalt their demon activity because you're using them. You're not pointing anybody back to you. God, I'm really not happy about that. And then look at the little bit of swagger that Habakkuk has in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So basically what God has done, he has dealt with Habakkuk in a very generous way, very generously. And now our boy has a bit of a swagger to him because he thinks that God is kind of, you know, he's kind of got... God on the ropes, and so he comes in with a little bit of, you know, swag, like a 13-year-old middle school boy. Got a little bit of swag with his dad and tells his dad, puts the boxing gloves on and knocks him on his fanny. And then there's no swag left. It's kind of like, oh. So here's the swag he has. I'll just position myself at the wall and see what he has to say about that. Now, here's the thing. If if, if we're really going to be honest, if you live long enough, there's going to be a day, there's going to be an hour, there's going to be this kind of season, there's this time going on where you are lost as to what God is really doing in your life. You can't figure it out. It seems to be foggy, it seems to be cloudy, it doesn't seem clear, it just seems to be a bit of a fog going on, and and you just don't, can't make any sense of it. And, and you're not going to be able to see all of it very well. And actually, it's actually going to bring a little bit of pain and hurt into your life. And anyone who's lived long enough will get there. So I don't want you to hear me saying that we're not allowed to come to God with questions. We're, I'm not saying that we're not allowed to plead with God on certain things. We've already seen that that's, 
that you can do that according to Habakkuk and his first complaint with God. And there's this message from God that we get because in, in our complaints. Because what God is looking for is he's looking for a certain person who comes with that kind of a complaint to him. And we find it in my favorite psalm, Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, the, God says this, The broken and contrite in heart I will not despise. Our boy Habakkuk, not a broken and contrite heart at this point. And it's like, it's when we say to God, help me. We say, where are you? God, I, I, I'm just like, I'm broken. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what this looks like. And God says, I love hearing that. I will never despise that kind of a, 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 a cry to me. And it's important to understand as we come to God, positioning. Now, there's always positioning that you have to have, especially, and I, you know, I, I use this term a little bit loosely, when you argue. Because I know that in some of your marriages, you never argue, you just have strong discussion. But positioning is still important. So if you grew up in a home like I grew up in a home, where your parents are engaged with you, they're listening to you, they're watching what's going on, you know that taking a position the wrong position, can be fatal. Doesn't work out well. Because when I was a kid, and I think there's a lot of you here who understand where I'm coming from, and some of you are old enough to remember, that there wasn't a corner that you got put in with a little stool, and your mom or dad didn't say to you, okay, mister, now you just sit in there and think about that for a while. There was no such thing as a timeout unless you were knocked out. <laughs> then there was time out. There was consequences for, for stepping up and having the wrong tone and taking a position that was wrong. Positioning is, is the thing. And so, listen, it's okay to hurt, it's okay to be bothered, and to have questions for God, but we need to understand our position in it. Because what does man love? Man loves man. We like to, to, to really celebrate mankind. And we think, you know, we're quite unreal. Now, we're headed into my favorite time of the year. My favorite time of the year, Lorinda's most despised time of the year. It's just around the corner, and it's called football season. Oh, yeah. We love our football. But right now, they're talking about all the rookies that are coming into the league. And they're talking about how great those rookies were in college. Phenomenal rookies in college. And, and they, they talk about, you know, all the strengths and all the conditioning and how high they can jump and all the rest of this stuff. And then at the end of it, the commentators say something like this. He's got unlimited potential. He's got unlimited potential. Hogwash. His potential is very limited. I mean, one day, he's just going to peter out. A, a, a professional 
football career doesn't last for four or five decades. It just doesn't work that way. Your body can't, I don't care, you know, how much steroids they pump into themselves. I don't care how much HGH or testosterone they put into their system. They, are, they have limited potential. It's very limited potential. And that's, that's really what we, but we, what we think is as human beings, we have unlimited potential. And we live our lives in that context of thinking that we ourselves, as human beings, we have this unlimited potential. And the problem with this is there's a gaping hole in that understanding of us wanting to be our best or us being best for ourselves. We, we see us as being able to solve any problem that comes along. Uh, we, we think we can solve anything that bothers us and being able to overcome anything that happens to us. And that's a very westernized, or even I would call it Oprah-esque kind of way of seeing the world. The way that the western world sees it, and the way we're teaching our kids to handle it, and the way that we step into it is that you can do, you can do anything. You can do it. You can come o- overcome any obstacle. You can make it happen. You can live the dream. That's the air we breathe. That's the air we give to our kids. And so my simple point is this. No, you can't. And that's not my point. That's actually God's point. God says, no, you know what? You don't have unlimited potential. God says, I have unlimited potential. I have unlimited resources. I have unlimited forgiveness. I have unlimited knowledge. I have everything that's unlimited. You, on the other hand, you have something that's limited. And and you cannot make these things turn out any better for yourself by thinking happy thoughts. It just kills me these days when you hear people say that. When they hear things that are going on in your life that aren't that great, and somebody comes up and they Because our culture has shifted so much that you don't tell people you're praying for them anymore. You tell them, I'm having good thoughts for you. Good thoughts? What's a good thought going to do? It won't even get me an ice cream cone. I'm having a good thought that you'll have ice cream today. Well, whoop-dee-doo. I'm having a good thought that you'll fall into a manhole. So here's the truth, is that we, we have, you know, limited potential. We have limited potential. And the, and the thing that we need to wrap our head around is that we need to see that we have limited potential. Because as long as you believe you have unlimited potential, it's going to be a roadblock to the joy of Jesus in your life. Because instead of going to the one who has unlimited potential, you think yourself being the one that has unlimited potential will handle the issue, the problem, the thing that's going on. I just have to think my way out of it. And that's just not going to work. So 
the only one that can help you with that is God. And the, the good news, God has unlimited potential. The bad news is you're not God. The other thing is a few of us have already um, have to deal with is that we, have, we think we have an ability to grasp what life is going to look at like with me making this a decision in my life right here. We just make decisions every day and we don't give any thought to or comprehend how our behavior today creates a mess for tomorrow. Our behavior today creates a mess for tomorrow. That's what Judah didn't recognize about their relationship with God. When they were under King Josiah and the revival was taking place and the renewal of God's kingdom in Judah, everything was flowing their way. But as soon as they went back to idol worship, they went back to the other way. They had no idea about how the things that they were doing at that moment, their idol worship was creating a big mess for them coming down the road called the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They were coming, and they were going to bring God's judgment upon them. And so, what I want, us, what I want to do today is to point out the double-edged sword of human ingenuity. We have human ingenuity. And, and there's all kinds of great things that we have. We have this, this great thing that was you know, invented over 100 years ago. It's called the automobile. And that helped us to get from point A to point B in a much quicker way, in a much faster fashion. It turned our nation totally around. Instead of horse and buggy and all walking and all the rest of that stuff, now we get in vehicles. And what would have taken days now just takes hours to get anywhere. But on the downside of that, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are killed in automobile accidents every year. And now, you know, I mean, usually back in the old day, if you had too much alcohol that you consumed and you got on your horse, your horse could get you home. Today, horsepower will get you to jail if you're drinking and driving or you're drinking intoxicated you will end up in jail at the best. At worst, you'll end up in the hospital. And so you see that dynamic that's going on. Let me bring one that, that really maybe is more at home for all of us. How many of you used the Internet this week? Just put your hand up. You were on the Internet this week. Okay. So, yep. And, and that's a really great thing because... Now what you can do is, while you're sitting in church, and I say something, you pull up your phone, and you fact-check me. Oh, oh, he is right. I'll be hornswoggled. So, you can do that. You can use the internet for all kinds of things, like all of a sudden you want to make some kind of a, a really good meal, and so you go to Mel's Kitchen, boom, boom, boom. There's the recipe. You don't even have to get a recipe book out. You just pull up on your phone. You go, oh, that looks really good. And, and then if you want to find something out, if you want to go out for dinner, you don't get out the old... Anybody still have a phone book in their house? What do you use it for? Swatting flies? I want to go to the, to the cowfish. And so you hit your phone or you go like this. Hey, Siri, 
called cowfish. Hello, cowfish, how can I help you? All right? You do that. And, and, or you might be doing this. I need to drive from here to Wawoda, Saskatchewan, Canada. Hey, Siri, how do I get to Wawoda, Saskatchewan, Canada? And then all of a sudden, the map comes up, and you put it on the dashboard of your car, and when she says, turn right, you turn right, you turn left, and the next thing you know, you're in, in some farmer's field, and you're going like, oh, I guess this is Wawoda, Saskatchewan, Canada. Because that's what it looks like. But that's how, we, how we've got this good thing of technology helping us out in life. And, and even right now, what I can do, if I wanted to, is I could go on my computer as I'm working on a sermon, and I could pick up, pull up thousands of different things on Greek words that are in the New Testament, and how those Greek words actually relate to the Hebrew word, and how they all tie together to bring home the point of the sovereignty of God, God's will in our lives, how God ministers to us when we're not even thinking about it, and all of those things, and I could, I could wow you with all the Greek words that I don't know, and you don't know, and you don't care about. Because it's on the internet. But on the other hand, the double-edged sword of this thing is now you, the thing that you had to work really hard at and had to be super sneaky about and was difficult to do and highly embarrassing was bringing pornography into your home. Because back in the old day, you actually had to go down to a place where you would buy that filth and trash and you would say, put it in a brown paper bag, would you please? Yeah, and throw some chew in there and some alcohol in there and that would be your you know, entertainment, as it were. And, and then that's how you'd sneak it into your home. And then you'd get in trouble for sneaking it into your home. Now all you have to do is you have to go into a private place and you've got your, your little porn phone, you know, pocket porn, and, and you can pull it up and you can look at whatever you want to and you can bring that trash into your home and you're thinking nobody is any the wiser. But here's the thing, if you start to go back and if you were to track statistically the rise of pornography through the internet with the abuse of wisdom, women and, and rape and all the other sexual sins, you would see that as pornography has risen, all those other sexual sins and um, things in our country have risen as well, and all we've done is created this world of hurt within our own families and our own friends. Sexual assault and abuse has gone hand-in-hand hand with it. And, and it's brought into our homes at, at, at an alarming rate, and we don't even bat an eyeball about it anymore. Good and bad. I'm, let me tell you one more. Um, another show of hands. How many of you, within the last 12 months, took penicillin for something? Put your hand up. Oh, you guys are a really healthy group of people. Are you on some other kind of drug? <laughs> Prozac? I don't know, you know. Here's what we know about penicillin. Is penicillin is a great way to fight infections. And you've got infections that go on in our bodies, and we go to the doctor. It's ear infection, it's a throat infection, it's whatever infection. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor goes, oh, yeah, let me just write you up a little prescription for penicillin. And you go down, and you get it, and you, 
you get the penicillin and you take it, and all of a sudden you're going like, I don't feel any better after I've taken all this penicillin. And so what, in, in our wisdom of creating this thing that's going to help fight infections with penicillin, what we've done now is, is our, our doctors and research people said, because we've got this new strain of bacteria out there that can fight against the, the, the penicillin, can't even touch it. So what do we do? We make a stronger penicillin. Because then the stronger penicillin will kill that thing. And so then we have all these antibiotics going on, and we have these strains of bacteria, and there's this fight going on. And so you make stronger antibiotics to fight the stronger um, thing that's going on in our bacteria that's going on in our body. And we all know how this ends because we've watched enough mo movies. We all turn into zombies and we start eating each other. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. That's, that's how it ends. And so here's the problem. We say, let's fix it. And then in fixing it and fixing the problem, we're making the problem worse. And so it just keeps on going that way. The problem gets worse. Our fixing is to fix something that's worse. And so what we can't do is we can't go on and continue to fix stuff. It just isn't going to work out that way. We're fixing something, but in the process, we're creating a bigger problem. And, and the, the truth of it is, is you're doing the same thing, not just in technology, but you're doing the same thing in your homes and in your families. Because get this, now you're having a fight with your husband or with your children. And instead of sitting down and working the thing out and finding how to, to come to a biblical resolve of the thing, you're going to your phone and you're picking up a phone and you're asking your phone, how do I resolve conflict with my wife? Divorce. That's not what you want to hear. It doesn't help. We're in the wrong area. And so this, this whole thing happens. But here's, what the, here's the Bible way of saying what I just said about us in, in our lives. Psalm 39 says, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all, man can, all mankind stands as a mere breath. In other words, we're here and we're gone. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So if, if you're, you think you know, you're like a flower that sprouts in the morning, and the wind blows you away in the afternoon, not even the ground you are on will remember who you are. Every place where you were doesn't remember you. Now, I want you to think about this. Get this in your mind. How many of you actually thought of your great, great, great grandfather on the way to church this morning? How many of you even know his name? If I were to take a picture of him and I were to set it before you, you'd go, who's that old dude? That's your family, man. That's your blood right there. Oh, what'd he do? Nothing. And you're like, oh, well, why are you showing me that? Because when you become the great, great, great grandfather and they look at your picture, you know what they're going to say about you? Nothing! And I know some of you are like, how can you say that? I'm so important to my family. No, you're not. Uh, I hate to tell you this. You're just like, you're just going to be in 200 years from now, people are going to be looking at your life and they're going to go like, did he do anything to change anything on this planet? And everybody's going to go like, who was he? 
I don't even know who my great-great-great-grandfather is. The only great-grandfather I know about is great-grandfather um, Cook because he passed money on to his kids. My, my grandma, no, she didn't get any of it, but my, my great-aunt, Aunt Grace, and my great-uncle George got the money. My great-uncle George, here's how he made an impact on this world, and you don't even know it, and you don't even care. And it hasn't helped me one little bit because I didn't get any of the money. But he had the patent back in the 1960s for Ford, Chrysler, and GM when they went from metal dashboards to plastic dashboards. He's the one that invented plastic dashboards for all of the cars you are driving now. He's the one that did that. And you don't even care. And I don't even care either. And nobody even cares. Right? That was, that was my great-grandfather. Who cares? So, I, I'm just telling you that in your life, you not only have pot, uh, limited potential, you also have limited ability. You also have limited time. Your time on this planet is just going to be limited. You are not going to have a whole bunch of time on this planet that you get to make all these great improvements for. So not only do you have limited ability and limited time and limited potential, you have a limited scope or understanding. Now, if I'm going to turn to... Um, no, I'm not. Don't need that. I can get past that. Let me go right. Yeah, let me just go right here. The problem with all of the things that we're talking about this morning is, is that we have this idea that we, we are unlimited in all of this stuff and, and that we can do all of this stuff. But the reality is, is when, we, when we come to the place where we understand our limitations and that that, that then brings us to the place of really understanding who is unlimited and that it's God, then when we get to the point where we're going like, out of my limited knowledge, my limited understanding, my limited view of life, my limited abilities, my limited time, I look at God and I say to God, you're the only one that can make a difference in all the things that I'm going to do on this planet. You're the only one that's going to take because the inheritance that you want to pass on to your family when you become the great-great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-grandmother is none of the other stuff that you think about. The thing that you want to make sure that is, is in your limited stuff, your limited scope of understanding, your limited time, your limited abilities, your limited potential, is that your family then gets this out of all of the things that you know because of the deep joy that you have here, this deep joy is found right here in God who releases that deep joy into our lives through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And if you want to make an impact on your family for generations to come, it is when you bring Jesus Christ to bear on your family and the things of this planet. I don't care. And neither does Jesus. Because you know why? 
Even Jesus redeems the dyslexic person. And one day when I get to heaven, it will all be whole and I will be fine and it's all going to be good. But here's the place where we go because we think that we've got this all figured out. We think that we understand everything. We think we know how everything fits together. We think we can fix everything. We think we can fix the dyslexic's mind to make him spell correctly, and you can't. I'm living proof of that. And here's what God says to us out of Jeremiah. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And And he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, to give every man according to the fruit of his deeds. And you know what? We think we're in the fixer-upper business. We think we've got the abilities to go in and fix up our lives, to fix up our family's lives, to fix up our finances, to fix up all the things that we've messed up. We think we can go in because of the actions we took today are messing up tomorrow. We think that even though we know we're going to make a mess of this today and it's going to affect tomorrow, we think we can go and fix it up. And we can't. We can't do it. And the only one that can help us out of this process is and help us to fix things up is God. Also in Jeremiah, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts, whose trust is the Lord. This is what that guy looks like. Understand this. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when it comes, when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in a year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's what happens when you have deep joy, when you put your trust in God for all these things in life, for the, for the limited things that you know about in your life. You go, I can't do anything about it, but God can. And it's God's gift to us is Jesus Christ who stood on the cross and He bore the wrath of God for us in our place. And, and so we have all these things going on. Now, in Romans 8, this is what Paul says. He says, for, for to set the mind on the flesh, that's us fixing the things, doing our own thing. But to set the mind on the spirit is, uh, is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to, towards God. Because when you say, I can do it, you're telling God you're too weak, you're too small, and you can't accomplish these things. But he goes on to say, um, it does not submit to the law, to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mindset of the flesh is death. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace. You go on to the, in those verses in chapter 8 of Romans, and Paul continues to say this. You, however, are not in the flesh. That is you, you who are in Christ Jesus. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So here, I'm closing this up real quick here. I'm going to give me, give me um, 120 seconds. Your life is not the fulfillment of the law. Christ's life is the fulfillment of the law. His crucifixion is the wrath-absorbing act that pulls the wrath off of us. The, rec- the resurrection and the compensation is God washing us clean of our shame and our guilt. Guilt, 
So not only do we have imputed righteousness, not only do we have wrath removed, but we also have been washed clean before the Lord so that there is this celebration in Christ over us for the purity of life we possess despite the fact that we don't possess it. And that's why we worship like we worship. We worship like Job worshiped when he lost everything and he fell on his face and he worshiped God and he blessed God. That's why we do this. And so whatever's going on in your marriage, whatever's going on in your addictions, whatever's going on in relationship, whatever is causing churning in your soul and in your innermost man, know this, you cannot fix it. And you need someone and who can transcend all of your weaknesses. The only way you will know deep, the deep joy of Job is when you stop thinking you're the fixer-upper of your life and other people's life. If you're tired of performance, if you're tired of lying to yourself, if, you're, if you know that you cause more harm and difficulty in the days to come because of what you're doing right now, you cannot fix that, but God can. And He is the only one that gives you freedom. He's the only one, Jesus is the only one that helps you go deep into the joy of the Lord. And here's the final word. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Our Father, if we're honest with you, a lot of us are really tired. We're tired because we've been trying to earn what was freely given. We're tired because we're trying to fix us. We're trying to fix ourselves. We're trying to fix our spouses. We're trying to fix our children. And God, I just pray right now that you would grant us the weariness. <laughs> Make us so exhausted that we just finally lay it down at your feet. We're not going to be able to muster any type of passion that you deserve. We're not going to be able to muster any kind of majesty that entails who you are. So even in something as simple as singing, we need you. We ask that in your mercy and in your grace, you would show us our inadequacies. And instead of being beat up about that, I pray, God, that we might find the ability to celebrate that you are unlimited, that your strength is more than what we need. In our weakness, you show your strength and that we would overcome our foolishness through you. We would overcome our fears through you. Our pain would be taken by you, that you would be the one who solves the great problems of our lives and that we would finally rest in the fact that we can't do it and you can and you're the only one. Help us to confess our lack of ability, our lack of time, our lack of potential, our lack of understanding, and that we would see your beautiful name being played out in our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.